Hello and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. Uh, this week we have something a little bit different. It is a panel uh, that I uh, moderated at RightsCon Silicon Valley uh, back at the end of March. And it's a panel that was officially on intermediary liability uh, and it involved three lawyers from three different startup companies trying to answer questions around balancing uh, the protections that they're given in terms of intermediary liability along with their desire to build a certain kind of platform. How do they make decisions about when to take down certain content um, and how do, how do they judge those things? It was an interesting discussion involving uh, Alex Fierst from Medium, David Pashman from Meetup, and Ev Sharon from change.org. Um, the conversation goes on for a while. We also recorded it off of just a single microphone placed on the table in front of us in a room that had a fair bit of echo. So the sound quality is unfortunately not ideal, <laughs> but you can definitely hear um, um, what's going on if you listen closely. And I thought it was an interesting discussion, or at least an interesting enough discussion that it was worth putting together as a podcast, even with the sound quality not being in entirely perfect. So uh, I hope you enjoy it, and we'll be back next week with a regular podcast. Thanks. Bye. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of the modern monocle. Stopping the copyright police from pulling the wall on us. Facing and taking on all the plate to pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinize and lies and make them fall. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. Dirt. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. Alright, so uh, welcome uh, to, to this panel, which is uh, on intermediary liability. We have three great panelists up here who I'll do a very brief introduction on in a second. Um, but what we want to make sure is that, uh, that this turns into as much as a discussion as possible. And we had discussed that among ourselves beforehand, not realizing the setup of this room. And it actually turns out this is great. We have this very much a round table setup. Um, so I think that'll, that'll encourage discussion. We have some stuff to get started with. I have some questions to get people going, but also because we want this to be a discussion, I'm gonna also throw some questions to the audience. And if people have questions themselves, you know, feel free, raise your hand, or you know, in a polite way, um, you know, make yourself recognized and, and, <laughs> and we'll uh, get you into the conversation because we, we really do want this to be as much of a discussion uh, as possible. So um, I'm not going to give detailed bios because you guys can look that up. We all have the internet, and I figure it's better to get right to the right to the discussion. Um, but we have three lawyers uh, on the on the panel. Uh, you say so disparagingly. <laughs> I, I, no, I say so happily because I have a lot but of. How many people insight. in this room are lawyers? So you know what you're up against. Right. Okay. okay. So I am not disparaging <laughs> lawyers, especially since they're all sort of blocking the exit. Uh, <laughs> Um, no, I, I meant it in an encouraging way. Um, and, um, and, and I did also want to make it clear that, that the comments that they'll be making, they wanted to make clear, are on their own behalf. They're not speaking for their companies. So if anyone thinks that, you're wrong. So don't do that. Uh, um, 
So just as the, the, the briefest of intros, uh, we have uh, David, Alex, and Ev, and it is uh, Meetup, Medium, and Change.org. All right? If you want to go deeper than that, Google. <laughs> uh, or you guys can say a, a word or two about, about your own experiences. But what we wanted to, the discussion today is officially about intermediary liability, um, and there are all sorts of ways that you can approach that question and, and have that discussion. And the thing that I think we really wanted to focus on today is the, not necessarily the, the side of intermediary liability that says, um, you know, not necessarily focusing on the safe harbors and, and, and how to protect, but what companies can do within that framework. And so in the US, obviously, we have sort of two major intermediary liability safe harbor type frameworks, CDA 230, which basically says you don't have to do anything. Uh, and you're protected, and DMCA 512, which is about, and, uh, which is about copyright, specifically um, CDA 230 is about everything else except any intellectual property claim, uh, and DMCA 512 says uh, if you receive a valid notice, you, to keep your safe harbors, you have to take down content. Um, but one of the interesting things is, especially with CDA 230 in particular, it, it gives the companies and, and platforms basically a wide leeway to then do whatever else they want without that impacting their safe harbor. So they can make decisions in terms of how do you moderate content, how do you um, uh, choose to do things, and that doesn't remove your, remove your safe harbors. And one of the interesting decisions that companies and platforms have been making in the last few years is how do they play within those options and how do they make decisions about you know whether or not they're going to, um, you know, moderate any content at all, or and if they are, how they want to go about that process. And so that's kind of the focus that we're going to focus on today. Um, and we, again, we want it to be a discussion. And the way we want to kick it off is actually go down the panel and have them each describe what we were calling their sort of one, at least one of their most gut wrenching decisions about how they handled content moder moderation uh, decisions and use that as a, a starting point for the discussion. So David, I'll start with you. Sure, great. I'll, I'll kick it off and I won't spend any time giving background on myself, but I'll give a little bit of background on Meetup because it's relevant to the example that I'm going to give. Meetup, for those of you that aren't familiar with us, is a platform for people to join an existing or start a new group with people in a local community around a common interest and then go engage in the real world around that common interest. So um, we face a lot of the user-generated content decisions that we'll be talking about in terms of uh, abusive content or harassment, but the example that I wanted to give focuses on something that's unique to the Meetup platform, which is really what kind of groups do we want on the platform. And so I think a theme that will come out is that your policies around content allowance or removal really need to be driven by the business objectives and the company values. And so because Meetup is a platform for developing community and engagement, um, we have parameters around what type of groups we allow. And we, are, we really struggle with what to do around one-time events because Meetup is not a platform like Eventbrite for one-time events. We're a platform for persistent groups that will have recurring events. But sometimes there's really great events that could lead to community. 
An example of that is the MakerBot conventions or fairs that happen all across the world. And one example that we faced was a MakerBot fair in um, Paris. If my, if the computer and the screen cooperate, I can show you what that group looked like um, and try and zoom this back. I don't know if you can see this. Um, it's not really necessary for, for this. Um, so um, when we are deciding whether or not to allow a group, we have to look at the purpose and whether this group is going to facilitate repeated long-term community and engagement or whether or not this is just a one-time event. And there's nothing inherently wrong with one-time events. They bring a lot of people together. You could form connections that could eventually lead to lasting community. But we really want to make sure that when people are on the Meetup platform looking for groups, that they're finding communities, not events. And so the interesting challenge that we have is when someone first starts a group, there's not a lot of information to determine whether or not it's going to lead to a long-term persistent community because it's, it's like a newborn. You don't know when someone's born whether they're going to grow up to be you know, a famous doctor or a lawyer, heaven forbid, or something else. You don't have any information to go on. And similarly, when a group starts, we don't have a lot of information. And so we sometimes would invest in coaching and reaching out to the organizer of that group to let them know what our community guidelines are and really see if there's touch points that can lead to lasting community. And so the reason something like the Maker Fair in Paris is challenging is because by all accounts, this is a one-time event. This is a, this is a fair for people to come from across the region um, and there's no indication of and, and there's no indication of any persistent community, but there is a community of these events across the world, and sometimes these events repeat year after year. And so the question we grapple with is whether there's a community around that. And then what we try to do is invest in coaching these organizers of these groups to create a persistent, or rather the organizer of this event to create a persistent group so that every year their maker fair can be within that group and there can be a community forming of people that are going repeatedly. So similarly to, to um, RightsCon, presumably there'll be one next year and wouldn't it be great if rather than there being a RightsCon 2017 platform where everyone registers again and signs up for events, it was all housed within a persistent platform so you knew who your connections were from your event last year. Um, perhaps that is the way they do it. I didn't come last year. But that's kind of the, the distinction between events and groups that we face. And the challenge is, is hard because there's lots of events that in and of themselves might be wonderful one-time communities, but we're really looking for persistence over time. Cool. Uh, hi, everybody. Um, Let's see. So Medium is a blogging platform that works socially. You can follow people and be followed. Um, uh, we were founded, I, I have no idea who has ever used or heard of us anymore, but uh, our, we were founded by Sam Fellow, who founded Blogger and then co-founded Twitter. And so he's been making, in his words, boxes into which you can put words and send them to other people for, I don't know how long, 20 years. So this is the current iteration. One of the things that I think is part of our thinking and in our design thesis is that there is some sort of, the, the attempt to have extreme free speech on the internet or the non-intervention that is permitted under, under CDA 230, at least in the US, 
certainly allows for tremendous freedom of expression, but it also allows for the drowning out of expression by the loudest people or the most persistent people or the most intimidating people. So there is some non-speech maximizing thing that happens when you allow everything as you might do under CDA 230. So then you have a harder question, which is sort of what will your rules be around taking things down when you don't have to take it down? And that is sort of what we grapple with. Um, medium is explicitly supposed to be about someplace that is substantive and civil and uh, and stands for maybe the idea that the the level of vitriol that we have become accustomed to on the internet is not the internet that we want. Um, and so there's a number of ways that we do this. One of these is like a series of design theses, which is that um, if you can put up maybe one of my slides, maybe the first one, yep. that the this is a thesis, not a uh, <laughs> not a law, but that the heft and the design and the way that people interact with the display of the post and the writing experience will cause people to feel the gravity of what they are about to put out into the world better, more than they might when it is small or in sans serif font or does not have their name and picture next to it. So there's a series of design choices that we make in order to let people know when you do something, you are publishing it into the world and a drive-by insult or harassing somebody may not be the thing that you want following you around with your profile for the, you know, for the rest of your time on this platform. And that maybe works sometimes and maybe doesn't. There are folks who've said to me, actually, I thought about writing something really personal and nasty, and then when I was going to hit that big green publish button, I thought better of it. So there's a series of things there that are sort of interesting. On the legal side, we have a bunch of rules that are directed at things like um, harassment and privacy violations and things that we view as not being about the truth or falsity of what somebody might be saying under classic CDA 230 thinking, but it's really, and, and my background a little bit before I was a lawyer, I was in the literary theory business, is that I think a little bit about like what J.L. Austin called performative utterances. There's things that say things and then there's things that do things. So when you publish somebody's address, although that is informational, what it also does is it creates the possibility of finding and hurting them. When you incite, incitement is another one of these sort of speech categories. And so that is not medium's way of thinking about the world, but it is one of the ways that I think about the utterances that are on the website and how we treat them when we've had a, when we've had a complaint about um, something like harassment. So as to privacy, similarly, when you're saying something about a person that changes the way that their image moves through the world in a way that is um, reasonably harmful is another way, way that we sort of think about this. These become very difficult. So just briefly, here's one example. This is a voicemail that somebody transcribed that a person left on somebody else's voicemail from their company, but not on their company voicemail, if that makes sense. You know, you had a former, somebody works at your former company, you call their personal cell phone, you leave them a really nasty voicemail. And this one includes sort of threatening the person's children and, uh, you know, saying sort of, sort of maybe, maybe things that both either were menacing or maybe they were just sort of factually uh, uh, not true. Uh, anyway. If, if you call somebody's voice and only leave a bunch of like sexually tinged menacing threats about their children, and then somebody posts it because they transcribe it, and then the person who leaves it says, could you take that down? It's, it is false, and also it is private. Um, which, so, and so this is maybe one of the, I, I put this up, this is one of the most interesting questions that I always have because if it's private, I think it is maybe something worth knowing, it is maybe tied to an employment situation, but it is also, uh, intimidating and harassing and all the other things. And also it puts you in a, uh, obviously in a bad light. Maybe it's a bad light that people should know about if it was in your professional context. And moreover, this is something I see increasingly. 
the idea that something is false and also private. Um, <laughs> that people sort of um, argue in the alternative that this thing about me which is false is very private. Um, so, and, and then, and, and how we deal with these levels of, of, um, of concern. So, so by false you mean he's claiming he didn't say it. Right, so. It's not that the claims he's making are false. It's that he didn't make the claims. Right, so, I won't, so again, as I'm sort of like, I don't want to get into any actual communications I have with anybody, but you can imagine that I post something about you on the internet, and then as lawyers are accustomed to, the lawyers will, will sort of say, this is false. And if it weren't false, it would be improper. And if it weren't improper, it would be improper under some other regime. And we're accustomed to sort of lining up our strongest to our weakest arguments in alternate realities. Um, like Donald Trump. <laughs> you know, I, I think you learned it by watching us. Um, so, these, and so there are many, many questions here, but one of them is sort of whether this legalistic style of arguing should be permitted in the harassment context. Whenever you can say something, well, did you say it or didn't you say it? And is it true or isn't it true? And if it's not true, are you, in, are you fearing for your life or are you speculatively fearing for your life? And that level of directness is not something that we're accustomed to doing in many legal contexts. So that, that is something that I sort of struggle with um, a ton. Um, I, I'll leave off in a second except to say that I think Medium sort of has explicitly, we've explicitly decided, like, we are grappling with the current sort of rise of, spa of safe space discourse and whatever that means to people, that medium should be some version of whatever a safe space is. That raises a lot of harder questions, such as safe for whom, safe from whom, safe to do what, that are much harder. So, and as, as I've said publicly elsewhere, you're not safe um, to, from having your ideas challenged. You may not even be safe from having them made fun of. Actually, could you jump two slides? Um, but you are certainly safe from direct some something like intimidation, harassment, inciting, and threats like that. I'll leave off with this. And so another, uh, the place that this has become sharpest for me recently is the idea of parody, which is a super complicated sort of copyright fair use category, and it fits fascinatingly into this mission of making a more civil, more substantive place for people to communicate for this reason. Um, you can parody somebody else's work and at a level of ethical plagiarism, at a level of copyright law, you're basically allowed under fair use, and that's our opinion. If it's, if it's a legit parody under all the precedents, it's allowed. But parodies are also really mean. And they're often mean by design. At the very least, they are mean to the text that they are parodying because they, by exploiting the difference through them, they are amplifying or making grotesque or doing other things to show that the argument can be cast in a ridiculous light. There's an intimacy between parody and the original text because of the way that it um, infests it and overlays it and suggests that when you read the original, you should read this thing that makes it now look ridiculous. And so there's a lot of personal and psychic pain that can be involved with seeing your work parodied, especially when it is a personal, memoiristic, self-revelation kind of piece, which we see a lot of on Medium. And so parody, oddly, sits at this crossroad that I just realized exists between civility and interpersonal safety that we want to encourage and the rights that people have under copyright law and also just as a writer to explore arguments and how to respond to them through, through humor and, and mockery. So I'll sort of throw that to you out there, but those are some of what I view as some of the hardest challenges that we sort of we get these every day of the week. I love the way you framed it. You know, the, the, the lawyer always starts with the postulate of, I'm going to get away with whatever I can get away with as an intermediate platform. And if it's allowed, you know, until I get a court order to take it down, I'm not going to take it down. I'm going to protect my platform. And then we all, I think, go through that journey of, but what's the right thing to do here? 
what is the ethical thing to do? Is that content actually harming someone? Um, and so thank God, actually, our director of policy at change.org is not a lawyer, but comes from a comms background and is very highly ethical. And she actually set up sort of a triptych of, um, you know, we want our platform to be open, safe, and empowering. And those three things have to, you know, open, meaning we want to encourage free speech. So we're a petition platform. So we want people to speak truth to power. We want people to be disruptive, to change the status quo. Um, and to organize, so we're giving them a tool to organize to do that through online petitions. So obviously, we want, we don't want to take sides. You know, if we start being the arbiters of truth, then you know th that's just not. We're not going to have a tool um, that really, you know, allows for that disruption. So we need to be open. We need to be safe, and I'm not going to go into it because you've explained it extremely well with your with your parody um, example. And then we need to also be empowering. If we're also too quick to take content down because we are averse of legal risk, then it's not going to be empowering for our users. If someone creates a petition, um, and, and I'll give one example that we, that, you know, it was a takedown that I was forced to do, that killed, pained me to do. Um, so this was a, a, a petition in France uh, against, um, so the target of the petition was um, a, a website called Sologer. Uh, which is like the, uh, the French equivalent of Trulia or Zillow. So it's one of those platforms that enables um, brokers and real estate agents to connect with uh, potential home buyers or home renters. And the brokers were not happy with Sologer. They were changing their pricing, they were lowering their levels of service, and um, they were basically kind of like, they felt they were being ripped off by all these different changes. And so they organized, and one real estate broker started a petition and explained all these horrible commercial practices of this website. And the website sent us a nasty letter, you know, those cease and desist letters that, that you get the takedown request. Um, and um, even though under French law, which is a notice and takedown regime, meaning that if you actually receive notice that there's something wrong with this petition, you're supposed to take it down. And I said, no, I'm not going to take it down because this looks like a very valid petition where people are organizing in order to speak truth to, you know, a powerful, this was a powerful website um, because it had a, a situation of monopoly in France. And so, you know, the only way these guys could get them to change was to organize and to, and to use a platform like change.org to have a voice and to change it. Um, and, of course, two, two days later, they came back with a court order, not, not taking down the entire petition, but kind of gutting it. And most, uh, you know, the, the, the most gut-wrenching thing about it is that uh, the court order also um, ordered us to reveal the, the personal information, the personal data, you know, the, the account information of the user behind the petition and behind um, some of the signers who had made some comments. Um, and, you know, that is a really chilling effect, you know. When you receive a message from change.org saying, I am so sorry, I received a court order, I have to disclose your information. And then in France, there's no way to challenge a court order like this. In the UK, there would be. In the US, there would be. If you receive a subpoena, there's some way to challenge it. In France, there is not once, once the judge has signed it. Um, so that, you know, that is not empowering. Um, and, and, of course, the petition starter closed mm -hmm. the petition. Um, and so that to me was where, you know, the system kind of like failed us. Um, so that was a gut-wrenching one. Conversely, um, about, you know, that evolution of like what is the right thing to do, um, we also have some defamation claims where, um, you know, it, it just seems that the, the claimant is in really good faith 
and the claimant is in a position of distress, just like in your parody examples. So we have, for some reason, there are a lot of petitions about dog and cat shelters in Buenos Aires in Argentina. And this was a petition probably by a disgruntled employee who was explaining that this cat shelter or dog shelter in Argentina, we actually had two of those, um, was you know not uh, in compliance with hygienic norms and horrible things were happening to the animals in there and so this thing needed to be shut down. And the cat shelter you know writes to us and says this is completely false. Please you know remove this petition. This is you know we're trying to help the animals. This is just not um, you know completely unfair. And, and you you could really feel a sense of distress. And in that case, we could have taken the same position as for the Sologe petition to say, I need a court order. You know, Argentina is a notice, and it's not a notice and take down country, it's actually a court order country. Um, so we could very well just say, no, I'm going to keep it up. Um, but in this particular case, we asked them to just provide to us the documents that showed that, you know, they were fully licensed by the city, <coughs> that they complied with, you know, the hygiene inspections or whatever it is they had to comply with. And of course, we have um, wonderful uh, you know, country teams that are in the countries that we can rely on to kind of help us you know, go over these documents. And, and we made a call, and we made a call to take the petition down, so we didn't request a court order for that one. So you know, sometimes you, you just have to do the right thing. Um, it's incredibly you know, time-consuming and challenging to go over each of these cases to see kind of like what the, what the use case is. Um, we had another one, and actually I have a par in the room here who helped me <laughs> um, figure that one out. Um, we had a woman who claimed to be victim of sexual harassment. Um, she worked in a big finance uh, company in India. She didn't start the petition, her cousin did. And so when she came up with this sexual harassment suit, she actually filed a police report, um, filed a claim. She was then let go, probably as retaliation. Um, she explains, you know, the cousin explains all of these facts in the petition, explains that the um, finance company is, is trying to subtract from justice, not responding, not showing up at the court or the court hearings, etc. Um, and of course, we get a nasty letter from the employer saying this is all wrong, this is all false. And you know, this is one, the sexual harassment accusations, this is a tough one because if it's wrong, then it really is bad. Um, but if it's right, you know, then we, were, we failed this woman if we take her petition down because we are the petition, that, you know, the platform that should enable these kind of you know, citizens who don't have access to influencers, who don't have access to political uh, power, who don't have access to journalists, um, and who just need a platform in order to, to fight their battles and fight injustice. Uh, so that one was a really, really um, gut-wrenching one, and uh, you know, when we when we did see there was a court order for that one, we had to take it down. But that 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 one hurt. Um, so I think those those are all really good um, examples and highlight just sort of how difficult this is. I think oftentimes people on the outside think that you know it's easy to just kind of you know set a standard whether it's just allow everything or or you know even further down the, the chain. Um, but one of the questions that I think comes up and one of the areas where um, that, that tend to get, I think, users most upset is when these decisions are made and they don't understand what happened or why. So what efforts do you guys take to, to if any, 
um, to be transparent about how those decisions are made, either beforehand or after. You know, do you have sort of public policies on these things that are out there that people understand? Or when you do make these decisions, how much uh, explanation are you providing to, to both the users themselves who are impacted as well as the public who may have seen this content or you know, may be interested in kind of how your platforms handle these things? Um, uh, yeah, I can jump in. So it's, we think about this a ton. And we're, we, and sort of being super transparent is part of our explicit mission. So, so one of the things that I do is I generally respond on Medium to users with my own account. So if there's a public issue, then I will respond. For a lot of things that come in by email, especially if they're privacy sensitive, um, it is frustrating, but we're, we're hamstrung by the fact that we, to make a full-throated explanation to the public that is very concerned, sometimes the users that are concerned, we would have to say things that violate the privacy of one or both of the people that are having the issue. So I think, so, so for us, we agonize over these. A lot of times we, one person will sort of work up the case. And, and, and in my view, what, what sites do, or at least what we do is like explicitly or implicitly are developing private bodies of common law um, based around the rules and policies that may or may not be published decisions, but you still do them. I think that's what you're alluding to. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's a question of how much, and, and so we at least have more than one person argue over the positions and advocate for the different sides to try to, you know, to try to give a, a defense and an offense for what's going to happen. And then we absolutely, when we write back to a user or to a complainant who's not a user, we do give an explanation. Um, and sometimes they want to engage, sometimes not, um, in, in a back and forth. Sometimes other users on the platform will get upset and as I said, that is frustrating. I do my best to respond, but also I don't want to, I, I, I try hard to give the company's thinking on it in a way that doesn't violate anybody else's privacy, but also to not get into a sort of, you know, back and forth volley with somebody that will eventually lead in sort of a vulgar exercise of power of just being like, well, no. <laughs> um, but, I, but I would like to make the reasoned arguments as long as it is possible the problem with a social platform is that things proliferate and then there becomes an efficiency point wherein like responding to 50 people with variations of the same concerns individually becomes not efficient and so you can write one omnibus reply that is maybe giving a short shrift to each individual person. And so these things are also hard. And maybe the radical, radical extreme of what you're implying, Mike, is like, oh, maybe there should be like, you know, Google Scholar for each of our platforms <laughs> wherein you can research precedents and make the best argument you can as to why something should be taken down or not taken down. And, and I don't think most platforms make those things public, but it's like a very interesting yeah. question. Yeah, so I think externalizing what you tell someone reactively, in other words, in the context of a specific case is a challenge, as Alex just talked about. Um, ex figuring out what to externalize proactively <coughs> is where I've been spending a lot of my time recently with the trust and safety team, because even though as a, as a private platform we can pretty much make decisions however we want, we've got clauses in our terms of service that make it clear we can take content down at our own discretion, we have broad safe harbors. I think speaking certainly for Meetup, and I think this is true for Change.org and Medium given our conversations, we're, we're trying to do better. We're, we're, we're trying to run our businesses and our platforms based in principles and values. And so it's really important that we have policies and guidelines that make clear to users, and in Meetup's case, organizers of groups, what the the sort of the social norms are. 
Um, and that's important because that way when we take something down or make a decision, we're not necessarily relying on the policies as, as the legal justification for doing so, but we can point people to the policies that were accessible and in existence when they created that content. And most of the time, most rational people will say, hmm, okay, I guess that's not allowed. I didn't play by the rules. And, and certainly there are people that will try to engage in a back and forth, but for the most part, having those policies externalized in some generalized way that people can look at is really important. But I think more importantly, or, or beyond having those policies externalized, they need to be part of the user experience. I don't think it's enough to have the policies buried somewhere next to your terms of service and privacy policy, which whether or not people read, we can have a separate debate about, but um, I'm seeking to make them part of the user experience. So for example, before anyone creates a meetup group, they have to check a box that explicitly says they agree to create, that they are pledging to create real face-to-face -face community. And um, as a, another example, Kickstarter, which is a um, which is a creative artist, it's a platform for creative artists to fund projects. Has the rules and sort of what kind of projects are ac acceptable in Kickstarter right in the process of creating the project. So I think externalizing the policies and making them part of the user experience is also really important. So totally on the same page as, as both of you, I think. So um, there's you know accessibility of, of policy. So in the same way, we're working with a product team, and we've already done some of that to integrate um, the policies. You know, as the user is creating a petition, so that they understand what the do's and don'ts of. And, and our and our community guidelines have do's and don'ts, and the do's are like how to create a fantastic petition that's going to be successful. So it's not just about you know policing. Uh, the content, but it's also inspiring them to create a petition that's actually um, going to be successful. Um, and then, um, you know, we're even trying to work with the data science team to kind of see like what all these petitions that, have, that we have tagged as defamatory, what do they have in common? What kind of word patterns do they have in common? And then when we recognize these word patterns as someone is creating a petition, can they have a pop-up saying, hey, you know, here's our defamation guidelines, you know, just so to kind of like warn them that, you know, you may not be creating content that's, that's, you know, will, will end up being legit. Um, so that's, you know, that's for the future. But that's where data science can really help um, policy. Um, and then on communicating with, you know, with the claimants, with the people who request to take down, and then, and then communicating with the petition starters and telling them, hey, there has been a request to take down. So again, transparency is, is the key. We have a fantastic user advocacy team here in the room. Um, and I think in, in terms of the macros of you know when do you use you know omnibus r response and when do you use a personalized response? I think when we get a, a claim, we do use a personalized response. Um, I think the key in the macros is to write them in a very compassionate way. Do not let lawyers write macros to um, <laughs> users. Um, user advocacy teams do that in a much better. Uh, way the tone is right, you know, it's on brand, it's on message, um, it's, uh, you know, and, and it has that built-in compassion that just lawyers tend to be voided of, so <laughs> my, my advice there. That's interesting. I, I, I think lawyers should learn to write that way, so I, I, I had to repress my compassion in order to get through law school <laughs> and, and, and litigation practice, but I, I do think that, to, to broaden your point, like the era of extremely guarded, terse, 
and combative yeah. responses. Yeah. I, I can't say it's over. I can only speak for myself. But it, it, it seems that many of us have decided those are not helpful, That's that the bluster is not helpful, that the chilliness is, un, is unhelpful, and that the harmonization of the voice from the trust and safety team and the legal team with the larger um, sense of the voice of your company is important. And Medium, one of the reasons I wanted to be there is because the voice is supposed to be approachable and civil and substantive. And so our responses, whether written by a human being or a lawyer, um, strive towards like some level of personal engagement and directness and sensitivity. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's, um, and we have several hats for each of us. Yeah. So I think um, what point that I've made was that your policies should not just say what is prohibited, but what is permitted. And I would go a step further and say, to the extent that they are aspirational, they should say what is encouraged. So when I joined Meetup about five years ago, our policies were all, thou shalt not. And, and that was helpful to some degree. But when we transitioned our policies into being more aspirational in terms of, this is what Meetup is for, and this is what we encourage, and this is what we want to see, I think that was a great step forward, and we saw a, a generalized improvement in the quality of groups and discourse. Um, and so I, I think these, these are all really good points. One of the things that and it gets to, I think, the point that Alex, you raised earlier about you know, how many of, you know, if you have to respond to 50 people, um, when you have these issues that so many of them sort of require a judgment call, how do you scale that? You know, I think you know for, for smaller organizations and mid-sized organizations, that's possible. But as organizations get larger and larger, they run into more and more problems. And I know that, I mean, I spoke to someone who was on Facebook's trust and safety team who explained once, like, like it would be great if we could go through these things individually, but we need to train a team of people halfway around the world to be able to follow this set of rules and decide very, very quickly whether or not we're going to keep this content up or keep this or take this content down. And that's why, you know, Facebook's certainly at points at least has had a reputation of not being very good at that thing, which is, is partly a function of scale. So how do you, as, you know, all three of these organizations scale and as other organizations and platforms scale, how can you you know, how can you possibly keep a, a system that, that works at that level? Uh, yeah, I can take that. So it's, um, it's funny because when we, you know, we always think, oh, we're small, so we have not a lot of resources for this, and so it's hard for us to, you know, keep up with the volume of content. And then when we meet with our counterparts in much bigger companies, they say exactly the same thing. So <laughs> we're like, oh, they have to be okay. <laughs> Um, and they also lack the resources and the tools, even though we think, oh, you should have access to these very sophisticated tools, you know, that detect content that could be a problem and takes care of it. And, and no, actually, because, you know, we gave you examples of those gut-wrenching decisions. These are never black and white. These are always, I mean, some are black and white, but the ones that land up on our desks, right, <laughs> are the ones that are gray. Um, and sometimes, you know, management of the company will be divided over, and sometimes there's a huge brand risk, and you know, so there's other considerations than just what's the what's the legal, um, you know, regime of, of a particular content. And so, um, so on scalability, yeah, I mean, you can. We we have this very long document called the escalation guidelines, um, and so depending on what it is 
um, you know, is it a defamation problem? Is it a harassment problem? Is it a bullying problem? Is it a protection of minor problem? We give very clear instructions to the user advocacy team as to what needs to escalate and, and what doesn't. Um, and, and most of the things we're able to kind of like nip in the bud with very, very clear. The, the policy team last year at change.org created 26 policies. So how do you protect minors? How do you prevent harassment and bullying? Uh, how do you prevent the disclosure of personal information in people's petitions? You know, and, and so you know, with the, the, the clearer the guidelines from the policy and legal team to the user advocacy team, and the more they're able to just deal with it with boots on the ground. Um, so that's kind of how we deal with scale, which is like very, very clear guidelines on what to do. And, and these omnibus uh, you know, responses and macros kind of like try to think about all the different case scenarios and make sure they have like a whole palette of macros to choose from. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's, that's how we've, we've been dealing with it. And we also have um, our, um, our staff on the ground, change.org has staff in 18 different countries. Um, and so, you know, we have petitions that are flagged by our staff, and then we have petitions that are flagged by our users. Um, and so staff flag petitions, you know, get, you know, also um, consideration from the, the user advocacy and policy team. Um, so that's kind of how, how we're able to do it, but um, I know you guys have, you know, there's always challenges in how do you, how do you deal with the volume. Um, but we're, we're doing a better job now than we were a year ago. Yeah, I think so. one way Meetup has scaled is by improving the on-site reporting functionality that, use, that, that are available to users. So if there's no on-site reporting, then what you're doing is you're basically fielding emails that are sent into support at Meetup or some other general support email address, and then it has to go through a whole escalation process, and then you look at the email, and oftentimes there's not enough information to make a decision, so then you're engaging in a back and forth with the complainant. And so obviously this requires product resources, but if there's on-site reporting, and, and Facebook is a great example of um, not everything, but of a company that has strong on-site reporting tools to address the scalability issue, it takes users through a, a sequence where it will ask specifically what the issue is, the tool records exactly what the page is that's presenting the problem, it could specify the contents, and then it routes the, the ticket to the right team in the company, and that makes things a lot more efficient. And then I think the next level up is, as Ev mentioned, data scientists that can build internal tools that will proactively identify the content um, based on keywords and um, if not and, and also not just identifying content once it's on site, but stopping it from getting up there. Um, but, but all of those require product and engineering resources, which for everyone in this room probably are, are hard to come by. Yeah. Um, Can I yeah. ask a question? Because this, this, um, this keyword monitoring thing, like that just strikes me as being really creepy. Um, because, I mean, you know, just yesterday um, I was reading an article about copyright takedowns um, and about how particular, I forget exactly the details, but you know, that it always struck me as being something that one of, is one of the easier things that you guys have to deal with. Maybe that's incorrect, but that was always my impression. Um, and, and this was sort of explaining how, you know, there's, there's because of the great volume of copyright complaints and that they have become very automatic and a lot of times context gets lost, even in that way. Um, so I just wonder about kind of more sensitive things where context is so important as to whether sort of going down this path of identifying keywords is really like 
how that makes sense and how you have like right. human intervention to deal with context and things of that nature. So is, you, you started off by saying it was creepy. So is it that you think it's creepy or that it might not be the most accurate way of addressing things? Well, maybe it's a little bit of both. <laughs> right. But I think at the end of the day, yes. I, I guess I really work, I mean, I work primarily on counterterrorism issues. Mm-hmm. And so I'm always kind of watchful for things that are trying to, you know, come up with ways of identifying extremists or terrorist content, mm-hmm. et cetera, because I'm very worried about context getting lost and, mm-hmm. and it's sweeping too broadly. So, and I know that's probably yeah. not a lot of what you guys right. are dealing with, but I think conceptually it's the same right. thing. Well, so one, I think one consideration is what are the ramifications of false positives? Right. So, um, we, you know, even if I had all the resources of... Right. Um, the entire company, I would not necessarily deploy data analytics to address every single problem. You want to look at your high volume problems and then look at problems that have a lower ramifications from for false positives. So one example of that on, on Meetup is spam. And we use filters and, and keywords to find spam, but we don't block someone's account uh, upon the first violation because we understand that false positive exists. So we have thresholds that we're constantly monitoring. In terms of the creepiness aspect, um, I mean, I guess this is a, a personal perspective, but I, I, I just don't find that creepy. I find that efficient. You've got, you know, real people are looking at what you're putting online, so I don't know why it would be creepy that technology is helping review that content. I'm not saying that's right. That's just not. That's my personal perspective. Yeah, I wanted to push on what. So like we, we often use the creepiness standard as a flag for, for privacy concerns, so I don't, I don't minimize it. But I think, I guess my question is, what is the detailed nature of the creepiness? Like, because, because one of my questions is sort of like, if it is public-facing content and it has been looked at for keywords and then that causes it to be given to a human being to look at it for context, that is very different than what I think you might have been saying, which is more like, if something either non-public-facing or public-facing is scanned for keywords and then an action is taken on the sole basis of a machine, that maybe is what's... So I'm, I'm unsure yeah. what, what the creepiness you're pointing at is. I mean, I think, you know, I guess, and maybe this is just kind of where I'm coming at this from and the kinds of issues that I'm more concerned about, which is that, you know, I do worry about... Um, about having sort of an ongoing monitoring based on keywords, right? But I think you're right, which is that the ramification end is pretty low, right? Like the consequences of that monitoring are not going to be... At least as the way it's used on our platform. Right, exactly. But that may not be the case for every platform. Yeah, I think think there's a a legitimate concern in some areas that she's raising. Like if you're talking about counterterrorism or whatever, there may be situations where if, if there's a monitoring system that is basically giving people a score of are you radical or not, you know, that <laughs> can have major consequences. And there, even when people say that, oh, you know, it's, we're just giving a score and then a human is reviewing it, once you put a number on something, like people's brains go to mush and, and suddenly the number <laughs> takes precedence. Right. Yeah. And that, that like gets creepy. Like right. right? <laughs> exactly. And that, and that can get very creepy. And so I think so, that's a legitimate... Yeah, I mean, we, we've been accused of ideological profiling in, in certain countries. Um, and, you know, it all depends on, on how you do things. We, we tag petitions for content. We don't tag users. But users sign petitions. Um, and we do know what, what you've signed. Um, but it, you know, it depends on how you use it. And most importantly, you can't let those kind of, of automatic systems go stale. Meaning that 
you know, if, if you're going to tag certain content as, you know, this is, you know, this, is, this has, you know, a radicalization potential or this has defamation potential or whatever it is you're trying to... You would tag something for radicalization potential? Seriously? For, for radical... Well, we would tag something for hate speech. We take down hate speech on our platform, so we would definitely, you know, so we definitely, we don't it's tag it, things, but, but we definitely keep track of all the petitions that have been taken down for hate speech. So I could imagine where the data science team would say, okay, well, what, what's, what do all these hate speech petitions have in common? What are the, what are the words that are used? What are the phrases? And remember, data science is not just keywords. It's also patterns, and, you know, it's a lot more sophisticated than that. <laughs> um, Sorry. And... Um, so the, the, the most important thing to do is to make sure that all these things stay up to date. Like, because what's defamatory, what's hate speech yesterday may not be hate speech today. What's hate speech tomorrow may not, you know, these things, they all, it all depends on the country context. It all depends, you know, we have, we have petitions that may be hate speech in one country that may not be hate speech in another country. So you're right, the contextualization is really, really important. And that can't get lost on, you know. So, like, on, if Donald like the Trump machine is out there saying that, you know, you should be doing X to Mexicans and Muslims, would that count as something that, you know, if that kind of uh, that kind of language was incorporated in the petition and change.org, would that stay or would that go? Sorry, what would the language be? You know, along the lines of some of Donald Trump's more recent speeches, right? Uh, whether it relates to, you know, patrolling Muslim neighborhoods or, you know, we should build a wall with Mexico. So Supposing there was a petition that kind of encapsulated those ideas. Yeah. Would that stay or would that go? It depends on how it's written. It's really, these are the toughest ones that we've had. We had once, I'll give you an example of, of the hate speech petition that we've grappled the most with. Um, this was... Um, this was an LGBT issue, so um, uh, you all know Caitlyn Jenner, right, who used to be Bruce Jenner. Um, after she went on Vanity Fair and she gave an interview and she explained that you know, she always felt like a woman. So there was a petition on change.org to the International Olympic Committee petitioning the, petitioning the committee to take away the gold medal from Caitlyn Jenner because if she feels like she's always been a woman, how could she have competed as a man? Totally sarcastic, totally unsavory, totally, you know, nasty tone. But then, you know, you looked at this thing and we looked at it as like, is it hate speech? Like, uh, you know, it's, it, it, there weren't hateful words in it. Is it bullying? Yeah, it's probably bullying. But then Caitlyn Jenner is a public figure. So, you know, you don't, you don't address bullying with a public figure the same way you would with a private individual. Is it, you know, then we came back of like open, safe, empowering, like it's certainly disempowering to the LGBT community, but then is it empowering to the people who are offended by LGBTs and do these people deserve a voice or not? These are very, very difficult issues. Um, and the same thing for, you know, uh, we had a lot of anti-migrant petitions in Europe, you know, after um, a lot of migrants um, have come up. and. The way we've been trying to divide this is if it's based on, you know, an economic um, argument, then we'll leave it up. But if it's based on just pure, you know, hate, hatred of uh, a minority, then then we take it down. But, you know, these are, th this is one that I was saying, it's, it's never black and white, it's always gray, like we, you know, and then you have that threshold of like, okay, if we take this petition down, how many others do we need to take down? You know, uh, you were we were talking about our, our jurisprudence, you know, and our 
uh, our, our common law that we develop. And you know, we, I always tell the policy team, our decisions of today is our jurisprudence of tomorrow. So we have to be careful about not creating a precedent as well. So these are, these are very difficult decisions. Um, and I do agree that while data science can help us flag content for review, data science will never replace the human um, you know, emotional and emotional intelligence you know, that is needed to make these decisions, as well as the local context. Uh, because you know, in Germany, um, there's a lot less tolerance for hate speech than there would be in France or another, you know, even though the law in France you know, uh, condemns hate speech more than it does so in Germany. So there's, it's not just a legal thing as well. It's also what is, what is palatable, what is tolerable, what is shocking in the particular culture um, where the petition is. Yeah, and just following up on the point that the data science will never replace humans, no matter how detailed your policy is, you said you have a 30-page escalation document. I'm sure Medium has something equally as impressive. Like three bullet points. Uh, okay. <laughs> um, but, and and for, for, for on Meetup, we've developed policies for specific areas that we see a lot of that have lots of shades of gray, and there's, there's matrices, and there's heat maps, and there's escalation paths. But at the end of the day, the hard cases will always be decided by people. And that goes to the point that who you hire to make these decisions is critical. And, and so I think um, you, know, it, you can't rely on a policy that could be drafted by the smartest person in this room or in the world. It's the people that are actually executing it and who you hire to be on your enforcement team or trust and safety team. Um, is an important decision and it, it, you need to make sure that they align with the values of the platform because ultimately it's these judgment calls that are going to draw upon the sort of the deep recesses of people's mind and what they believe in um, and it's important that you have people that are aligned with what you're trying to achieve making those decisions. So, um, so I have an, another question but uh, right before I ask it I, I do want to make sure we get more audience folks involved. And one of the things that I wanted to do, if people have questions for the panelists, they can obviously ask those, but I also want to throw out to the audience, one of the things that, that we wanted to discuss is we had you know, the, the, three, of, um, the three experts uh, up here on the panel talking about what they've gone through. But you know, one of the things that, that we've seen whenever these issues comes up is that um, lots of people have opinions on ways that things could be better or should be improved or changed. And so uh, I believe that all three uh, of the folks on the panel are open to other ideas as well. If, if people have good suggestions on how do you handle the hard cases or how do you um, manage any of these things. So if people have suggestions, I'd like to get those thrown out here for discussion as well. Um, but first, the, the question I had, it's come up a few times now, this idea of sort of the internal juris jurisprudence or common law that's been created by the decisions that you guys are making. How much concern do you have that those the decisions that you make might actually extend beyond that, which is not just the internal jurisprudence, but um, that it might impact uh, in one way or another um, either uh, external laws that you know when when certain things happen um, that might drive uh, uh, you know regulatory policy change based on how, how someone's doing you know potentially against the decision you made or potentially accepting the the kinds of decisions that you make that are, are standard I'm thinking of like you know YouTube now in the copyright space has content ID and now there's sort of this 
general concept that at least some people have that you know the law should require some sort of automated system like a content ID for better or for worse. Um, do you worry about it expanding beyond your own you know corporate borders? Yeah, um, I, I wish that Meetup was so large right. that my decisions <laughs> could have that that impact. I, I but, think but it could go the other way too, which is which is if you make a decision that is that that um, for whatever reason. Politicians sure. grab onto yeah. and say, "Like you made the wrong decision, yep. and therefore we're going to Absolutely. regulate." A, a, yeah, a I mean, I think that there, that is a very real scenario that is playing out with larger platforms. So, for example, Google's trademark policy is actually more relevant in a lot of situations than what actual jurisprudence is, because most of those decisions are being made by Google, and similarly, you know, YouTube for copyright. Um, I'm, I'm. I'm individually not worried about my decisions having any impact on legislative or regulatory or judicial decisions. What I'm focused on is consistency across the platform, and that's not. And I've never thought about creating a body of common law or stare decisis for those lawyers in the room. Um, but but the reason I'm focused on consistency is I want a consistent user experience um, for the organizers that are trying to create groups and also for the users that are looking groups, looking for groups. So a lot of our policies, when we're developing them, we need to make sure that they are tools that can be deployed to make consistent decisions. But I also view them as living documents. And as we learn more and face more cases, we always want to circle back to the policies and make sure that they are, um, that they are sort of organically growing. It's, it's not just the concept that Ev mentioned in terms of making sure that what is hate speech today is what's hate speech tomorrow, but it's also us looking at our policies and saying, hmm, we thought that this was the right way to enforce around this issue, and it turns out after doing it for a few months, it's not, and we need to revisit the policy, not necessarily because we've changed our values, but because that escalation path isn't working. Um, but then there's also things that are issues of first impression, and I don't, I, I don't force us to create a policy around it the first time we see it. We can make we can make gut calls sometimes and I think that's okay. You know, even if you've got your thirty-two pages or three bullet points of escalation paths, you shouldn't you shouldn't be afraid to sort of step outside and draw on, on your gut or your team's gut or engage in the healthy debate that Alex said he does with, with his colleagues and realize that not everything needs a policy. Sometimes you can sort of rely on on the company values. Yeah I Let's see. I also am not especially thought. I mean, one worries that like if you make the wrong call, then the state attorneys general will really get it together and like want to do something to roll back to the A two thirty. That is, and and that debate will happen when it happens. Right. I don't think one can like administer a system like this with that kind of shadow over you because it just makes it undoable. I do think an interesting thing that's that I've seen because it arises from the argumentation that people with grievances um, take as a strategy is cross-platform consistency, which I don't know what to do with mm -hmm. this, but certainly one might see stuff like, this is a thing, Facebook took it down, Vimeo took it down, why are you being such jerks? Um, <laughs> and, and that raises all sorts of strange questions, not just about the actual coordination, whether we can believe this is true or not, whether the material was mm -hmm. identical or consistent, whether the policies are identical or consistent, um, it ra and, and, and whether it's appropriate to, 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 to discuss this stuff, it raises, like I think, a really big conceptual question, which is like, if, you are, if you're of the mind 
that a lot of large platforms and intermediaries, or even small ones, are you know are run by you know a bunch of coastal kombucha swilling liberals, then you will feel like your political views have no place to go. That if the platforms are relatively unified in thinking that what you have done is hate speech and not you know something that is substantive engagement with a little with with a lot of uh, passion, then you do have. Although no, no single one of us as a platform has this greater you know, government actor style First Amendment obligation in the US or elsewhere, um, this idea that we don't want this on our platform, but I don't know that I don't want it on the internet. Um, you can certainly make your own website. And so I do worry sometimes about the idea that, that there are a series of choke points, and if there is greater consistency across them, then there is more of a cumulative effect. And I'm not sure what to, what to say about that except to acknowledge that it exists and and that it's worth thinking about. I'm, I'm just wondering about if any of the panelists have uh, had that happen in a direct way, having it be either by a content owner or by a complainant having the choices of a different platform uh, thrown at you. So I mean, the, the example I just gave absolutely happens to me mm -hmm. all the time, definitely. And you will certainly also see stuff like if we, if we take something down or if we say like, if you don't remove this personal identifying information about a person you wrote about, which puts them in danger, we will take it down. So take X number of hours and please modify that one thing. Um, they will then potentially like put it on another platform and additionally say like, and this, thing was, this is the thing that people try to silence, but it will not be silenced. Um, and so, and, it, and, and, that, and that itself has a sort of Streisand effect in itself. So I, my opinion is yes, it happens, and I think it is a rational and valid argument strategy for people with grievances against platforms, which is to say what, what we view as your peers seem to be converging or not converging on something, what are you gonna do about it? Yeah, I'll, I'll say even, even on my tiny platform of TechDirt, we get, we get those kinds of arguments all the time. I mean, you know, at least, you know, probably once a week we'll get someone demanding that a comment or something be taken down and we'll argue that similar content has been taken down elsewhere and try and pressure us that way. Yeah, for defamation it's the same thing with, I mean, I speak a lot about defamation because, you know, that's kind of, as opposed to you guys, you know, what, what we over-index in a little bit in our, in our takedown requests. Um, and same thing, it'll say this petition is defamatory, but then we look at newspaper articles all over, you know, this particular court case or this particular individual that, that the petition is talking about, and that same content is everywhere. Um, and so, you know, when that happens, you know, that also kind of like gives us a, a stronger position to say, you know, we're not going to take it down. Um, whereas if we see that it's only on our platform and we can't find any other uh, content on the internet about that particular, you know, Thing that, that the petition is talking about, then you know, then we'll 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 be more sympathetic to the claimant. Doesn't make a complaint it's a chicken and egg problem. Totally. Yeah. I mean, look again. These are difficult, <coughs> difficult decisions, um, and sometimes you have to. Uh, you were talking about you know the newborn with the totally like, imperfect data. Like we have to make a call on whether we think the claimant is full of it or is the petition starter full of it? And we have petition starters who are you know, disingenuous as well. And we, it's very, like we, we can't become the court. You know, we're not, we can't be the ones to determine what is, what is truth. Uh, that's, you know, that would be like, <laughs> that's just the most horrible thing a platform could do. Um, so we have to work with imperfect information and which is why we will always err on the side of keeping the content up on, until, someone has really convinced us that 
you know, there's a good reason why that content should come down. I, I just want to mention, I saw, go ahead, go ahead. Follow up on that. It seems very much like you were determining what is truth in the case of the Caitlyn Jenner petition. We, we kept that one up. Okay. We kept that one up. And actually what made the decision more or less difficult to keep it up is that the ICO decided to respond. Um, the Information so Commissioner's Office in the UK? No, the, the, the International Olympic Committee. Really? <laughs> the IOC, sorry. The IOC. Um, um, uh, yeah, it's, it's you know post safe harbor season, so obviously <laughs> in my mind. Um, yeah, and so and so then it gave us the comfort that okay, we're a platform where the debate happens, right? And that's always good to be able to have you know uh, speech and counter speech you know right next to each other. Like that's really the you know the, the, the best possible outcome to uh, a case like that. Um, I think I think to address to address what you might have been getting at is that there. There are situations where there is a truth or a falsity value to something that is relatively clean, which is to say somebody says, X happened, and we're not in a position to say, well, I don't know if X happened. Or there's a characterization of it, you know, so-and-so <coughs> did X, and it's, and it's maybe a tendentious description of something that we don't want to take a position on whether that's an accurate description. The stuff that I'm finding very hard and interesting now are these things that are on the line between something that has truth or falsity as a, as a statement and then also has these other things that it does in the world that are not necessarily incitement. So, so to a similar point, gender really raises a lot of these issues for, for whatever reason. Outing, so sort of outing somebody as gay or outing somebody as transgender is another very interesting example because somebody might say, write a long personal piece and say, here's the thing that happened, here's a bunch of other stuff that happened, and also I was talking to so-and-so who is transgender, and then and whatever, and then that person might write us and say, uh, I'm not out. Um, and it's dangerous to be outed it puts me in physical danger in most parts of the world, and so, so, so take that out. And then the other person would say, but, it, but it's true. And they'd say, well, I don't know if it's true or, or if it's not true. I don't, I don't know if you're outing somebody. I don't know, I'm not gonna, uh, there's no ability to determine this. There's been a claim made about a level of risk that is created by, by saying this about somebody, true or not true, malicious or not malicious. And then you have a much harder set of questions about assessing the risk that's created and whether it's fair to what they do. Does that make sense? This is similar to the conceptual question of sort of it's private and also it's false. Mm -hmm. Like you, you can try to bracket the truth value, but then you also have to think with as much sort of um, sensitivity and integrity as possible about the reasonableness of the risks that people raise. Because of course people are incentivized to, to sometimes magnify those. Is one of the calculations in that weighing up the effect on removal <coughs> of the integrity of the writer? So if someone says, I know so-and-so transgender, and they said they really supported the New York Knicks, right? Not so important, right? If the point that they were making is affected by that disclosure about themselves, and that is germane to the whole piece. So is, is that factor relevant in your deliberation or not? Yeah, of course, it, it is relevant, and also the integrity of the platform, right? Like, I view every takedown as a blemish at some level. Like, we want, we want the platform to be guarded. Like, we're talking about negative screening somewhat is the stuff we take down, but, but to, to, to David and Ed's points, like there's also positive gardening that one tries to do to foster the things that you want. So that's a whole other set of questions. And one of those is sort of the idea of trying to have a good ecosystem. So this idea that like there's the integrity of the writer, which is maybe at cross purposes with the person who, who feels their harm, but then there's just the larger integrity of the ecosystem that you're trying to make it work. And absolutely, I mean, I, I would be very surprised if 
always didn't think about that. But to your point about um, for petitions is very relevant. Of you know, will the petition continue to have force and, and power, and you know, or is it gutted if you take if you take this content down? Does you know the petition? The ones we love the most are the ones that really carry a public interest, you know. And um, sometimes, if you take down one line, you know, the petition still has a lot of strength and still has a lot of convincing power for people to sign it, and it, and it still carries the advocacy, um, you know, message that, that it's supposed to do. Um, we had we had one case, and this was this was a different policy. This was about whether so, so our campaign staff um, supports some some of the some of the petitions. And this was a petition starter that was petitioning uh, Amazon to stop working with Woody Allen because Woody Allen is a horrible person because he did blah, 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 blah. And um, the campaign staff wanted to support this petition. And so when our campaign staff supports a petition, the intermediary liability completely goes away because now we, you know, we put kind of our, our um, support team behind it. Um, and we proactively email it to our users. And so in this one, where there was a, de a huge defamation risk to do this, but I kind of still like the petition. I'm like, yeah, we should still try and find a way to support this petition. So I told them, okay, just say Woody Allen. You don't need to say Woody Allen did this, 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 and this. Everybody knows this already. It's all over the press. You know, make it more about Amazon and their brand values and, you know, how they should, you know, interact with their users, how they should present themselves to their users, and make it less about Woody Allen. But, you know, and so I, I still enable them to, to go ahead and, because the, the petition itself, the, the, the subject matter and the advocacy message of the petition still had a lot of value. Maybe it sort of seems on topic, sort of off topic, uh, because I am fascinated by what you said about the, the worst thing a platform can do is try and determine truth, because it seems like change.org putting its advocacy capability behind particular petitions is also a very strong determinant of truth, right? Like you said, you lose all of your safe harbors because you are effectively saying that change.org believes that these, whatever it is that Woody Allen did, he actually did, right? Otherwise, you wouldn't be supporting the petition. Well, we didn't talk about what Woody Allen did. Right, okay, but I mean, um, you're, you're still, you know, you, can, you can't say, we'd love to support this petition, but by the way, we have no position whatsoever on whether Woody Allen did any of these things that he really shouldn't, Amazon shouldn't be working with him because he might or might not have done. That, that's was, not a coherent yeah, position. Yeah, I mean, again, it was more about the the symbol and the you know and what people know about Woody Allen. So it's like as Amazon, as a brand, should you be doing that? You know, should you be exposing your brand to that? Which is Sorry. a different topic. But to, to go back, you raise an interesting question about which petitions should we support and which petitions should we not support. Um, and we do we do support petitions that range, you know, from all spectrums on all issues. So we don't we have you know teams that work on uh, petitions that are left, that are right, that are uh, you know, women's rights, gay rights that are environmental rights that are, you know, I mean, animal rights, it, it ranges from really local petitions, internet, you know, big international issues like female genital mutilations. So some of the some of the efforts will be coordinated across countries, some of the efforts will be very pointed on a particular thing. And the the, the main criteria of you know, do we want to support this petition is does it have a good theory of change? Is it actually, is it a concrete change? Is it something that can actually happen? Can the decision maker uh, that is targeted in the petition, can that decision maker really actually make that change happen? That's really like the, 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 the most important criteria. Um, and then we also, we test, you know, uh, we'll first test the petition, we'll send it to a few users. 
Uh, we're completely off topic. I apologize. But I'm just responding to your question. We'll test it with uh, with a few users, and if we see that it's it's you know it, it has like good potential for virality, that you know it's it's uh, it's uh, it's getting a lot of traction, then we'll you know we'll make a bigger effort and so on and so forth. So, um, so yeah, uh, we're 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 running out of time. So if, if you guys want to continue that conversation, maybe. We yeah. We'll do that. I, I want to make sure if anyone else has any questions, or we have hands. Okay, <laughs> start here. Question on the uh, outsourcing of your your process. I, I guess at the end of the day, you're deciding internally, but you know, some of those uh, uh, cases you mentioned you know, all over the place, different laws, different jurisdiction, different languages. Uh, to what extent are you relying on outside? Uh, support to in your, in your decision process, review process, or enforcing your terms of use? So um, we don't outsource or offshore any of our decisions. I know there are some companies that will, will that you can outsource a lot of content decisions to. Meetup doesn't use any of those. We use third-party um, analytics tools that are basically like a data science layer that help us identify either known bad actors or patterns in content. But we, but but those applying those tools and the decisions about that content are all made by people in our New York office. So, and I, I've heard, spoken with with colleagues at other companies that have had neutral or positive experiences, but I think they work most effectively when you have a a very high volume of relatively less gray cases. Right. Yeah. So that's we, we outsource our our as I said boots on the ground you know user advocacy. Team so that we have so they have the, the language skills, uh, and then we give them very um, concrete uh, and detailed guidelines as to what to escalate. And so anything that is not black and white, that is you know possibly gray, will escalate to our trust and safety leads um, and our policy team. But the but the bulk you know the, the bulk of the um, of the tickets are either false positives or something that's just very easy to deal with. Yeah. Okay. And the same with us. Like we, we, I mean, just since you're asking, so we, um, I mean, with medium is like long form writing. So there's not a lot that you know that does not require even at some level. I don't. I mean, I don't, we don't outsource anything. We use outside counsel occasionally to give us advice. I don't know if that counts as outsourcing or not, but for different jurisdictions. Um, but also we sort of and, and we're sort of looking at analytics tools and things that flag. So that's what we, we make the decisions with context, and some of those inputs come from outside of our San Francisco office, but largely it's, it's us. Great. Questions? Uh, what happens is that you shouldn't have to take it down. Do you provide uh, 
a remedy for that is it clearly stated in your website. Do users come to you to ask what they can do? Yeah, I mean, on the, on the first question, uh, the answer is no. Never, never received any kind of request or pressure or from the government. Um, no, and you know, the, the government has never asked us for any user data. Like that has just hasn't happened. The only user data requests that we've had were like in, in either like a police investigation, like something very targeted, or or a civil court case or something like that. Um, and then the second question was. Uh, it was, uh, well, my first question is what does the law come into place in all of your... Yeah, I mean, the, lo the law comes into place, so, you know, you were talking about heat maps, right? So we have, like, a defamation heat map of, of the world where we have countries in five different categories, whether it's, a, you know, Section 230, um, notice and takedown, court order. The UK is a thing of its own because we're defamation in this particular regime, which is good. I actually, actually like the UK regime. It's very clear as to what we need to do. Um, and then the, um, the the other one is high risk countries that we have, right? So um, like Indonesia or Turkey, or where an administrative decision can shut the whole site down if they don't like what's on there. Um, so yes, it does come into play. And when it's a high risk country, we will, you know, we will be more prone to take content down, even though we don't want to, than in a country like the U.S., where you know we can kind of say, you know, bring it on. Um, I'm going to defend the content. So absolutely. Yeah, so we, and I'll, I'll keep the anecdote brief, but we, Medium is now blocked in Malaysia. Um, so there's been a somewhat public thing that you can read about this um, uh, in which an investigative journalism uh, publication, uh, its own URL was blocked in Malaysia and it was sort of a muckraking uh, outfit and they were publishing on Medium um, and breaking various stories about the Prime Minister and others. This is all documented stuff in Google. Um, and they sent us a takedown request that is the uh, sort of the equivalent of the FCC, the, the M MCMC yeah. and the MCC uh, together sent us a takedown. And we requested more information. There's a post on Medium about this with the emails. And in response to that request for more information, we were blocked. So that is maybe not a great example of a process that reached its terminus. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, the post that was at issue was up, and Medium is with some inconsistencies not available in Malaysia. So that is a thing that happened. Um, that's the main one that comes to mind. Um, but this raised, of course, I think to briefly bracket the questions that I guess that this raises, one of them is sort of if an administrative and non-judicial body from another country makes a request and maybe under its national law that is sufficient to have a takedown in that country, and maybe it's not, then you have a series of questions about how you respond to it. Um, if you have reason to be skeptical about whether that country's administrative or judicial bodies uh, are harmonized with US due process norms, or European <coughs> due process norms, or whatever norms that you believe are important, then you have a series of research questions and maybe judgment calls to make um, which I don't think can be schematized or put into a machine learning algorithm, but they should be addressed. So we, we think about those things, and we do talk to outside counsel about them, and we do um, try, to, try to think about it, and we don't act precipitously. Um, the Malaysia anecdote doesn't prove any of that because we did very little, but, uh, but nevertheless, these things happen. So um, I don't mean to cut you off, but we, yeah, we are over time at this point. Um, 
if people want to stick around and talk a little bit, they can. But I, I know that people want to, you know, move on to the next sessions as well. But um, it was a very interesting discussion. I'm sure we actually probably got, could have gone for twice as long because um, we didn't even get to most of the questions I had, which is great. Uh, and other people in the crowd also have questions. But I want to thank you guys uh, for, for doing this. Thank you. And thank everyone else for for coming. As well. Someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tear. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get.